Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I want to discuss the abortion referendums that have been happening across the United States since the Dobbs decision at the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade on June 24, 2022. Now, those of you who follow the abortion debate, and I assume that many of you who listen to this podcast probably do, uh, will know that on November 7, there were a number of setbacks once again for the pro-life movement. Now, there were a number of pro-life politicians who struggled across the U.S., but the key loss for the pro-life movement was in Ohio, where on November 7, right around 57% of voters endorsed the, quote, make a right to make reproductive decisions, including abortion initiative, which was known colloquially as issue one. And this vote created a state constitutional right to, quote, make and carry out one's own reproductive decisions, including but not limited to abortion and contraception. And this initiative further actually bans the state from passing any laws to protect preborn human life until after viability, which is essentially what Roe v. Wade did. And even then, a proviso stating that abortion must be available when, quote, necessary to protect the patient's life or health is worded so deliberately vaguely that abortion will essentially be legal up until birth. That is why uh, they word these um, motions in such a way. And abortion activists have already stated that, oh, Ohio's 24-hour waiting period is their next target. And the passage of issue one has left a lot of pro-life leaders feeling pretty grim because Democrats and the mainstream media have presented this and other November 7 votes in Virginia and Kentucky as part of a larger backlash to Dobbs. And it's true. Uh, it, you know, we have to face the facts and those facts should compel us to do some soul searching and some strategy examination because pro-abortionists have now won seven state-level referendums most notably in Michigan and California, where a de facto state of affairs also permits abortion up until birth. And in Ohio, despite a Herculean canvassing effort by pro-life groups such as Created Equal and the Susan Anthony List, we uh, we had um, Created Equal's executive director Mark Harrington on the show a couple of weeks back to discuss the Ohio referendum. Pro-lifers were again outspent by a margin of three to one, had their ads drowned out on TV by abortion activist spots and faced a hostile media that of course gave the pro-abortion side millions of dollars in free advertising. We know that the mainstream press spends a ton of time so-called fact-checking pro-life claims by which they mean debunking pro-life claims. Now, there's a couple of things I think that we need to examine as we're looking at these decisions. The first thing is that I don't think that these decisions, these votes, uh, are any cause for despair. And I'll get to that in a minute, because first, I do think we need to be very clear-eyed about some of the reasons that these votes happened. The first reason, of course, is that abortion is inextricably linked with the sexual revolution. And so there are always going to be a percentage of people who simply cannot fathom the idea that there is no backstop option if they get pregnant while having sex outside of marriage. There are an enormous number of people, the vast majority of people, in fact, in the United States and elsewhere in the West, who have long abandoned the moral standards uh, on sexuality put forward by Christianity and other faiths. And as such, because they have not only relinquished the moral values that regulated sex, but have, in addition to that, ignored the biology that proves that a new child 
child's life exists from the very moment of fertilization, they believe that abortion is necessary in order to sustain the lifestyle that they want. And to a degree, this is true. Abortion activists will claim, and very often do, uh, that if pro-lifers truly cared about saving lives, uh, we would advocate for the widespread availability of contraception. And of course, contraception already is widely available, and even for those who morally approve of contraception, which I wouldn't count myself as one of those, we know that contraception actually uh, raises the abortion rate because it encourages people to engage in sexually risky behavior. And good data out of the United States indicates that 53% of women seeking abortions were using some form of contraception when they got pregnant. Uh, the reality is that contraception is not nearly as effective as its advocates claim. It encourages risky behavior and results in more abortions, not fewer abortions. And so let's look at where we're at after this seventh abortion referendum loss from the pro-life side, before I get to why I don't think that despair is warranted. But it is important, again, to look at the lay of the land, to examine the strategies that have been used uh, during these abortion referendums, and to ask ourselves uh, what might be done differently and why the pro-life side keeps on losing. Now, the voting public can generally be uh, divided into three key groups, and that's the, how the pro-life movement, especially the educational arm of which I'm of a part, um, organizes their strategy. There's th three groups, hardcore pro-lifers, uh, hardcore abortion supporters, and then what strategists refer to as the mushy middle, those who find the abortion movement's agenda to be extreme, but still support abortion in some circumstances. And it's that group in the middle that activists on both sides must, persu be, must persuade. And in a direct democracy referendum where people are voting directly on the issue, abortion activists have a number of very significant advantages that not only has the pro-life movement failed to address, but I think that the pro-life movement is often using precisely the wrong strategy at attempting to reach the smushy middle. And I believe that the narrative being put forward by abortion activists is far more compelling to that mushy middle which is regardless of the fact that we're being outspent, these, these things are all true, they're, they're beating us on narrative. Now, for one thing, I, I do think it's important to note that the abortion activists own the media. In Ireland, for example, it didn't matter that multiple investigations established that Savita Halepinavar did not die due to being denied an abortion, but what mattered was that the media incessantly published assertions that she had. And that created this very simple, powerful narrative. The Irish Constitution's Eighth Amendment, which protected all preborn children in the womb, was responsible for a woman's death. And that even though Middle Ireland, so the mushy middle, did not support abortion on demand, the media persuaded them that women would die if they did not vote to repeal protections for preborn children. So activists didn't have to sell abortion on demand. They simply had to persuade the mushy middle that pro-life laws killed women. And for any of you who are interested in reading the story of the Eighth Amendment and the magnificent pro-life movement and pro-life effort in Ireland, you can check out my book, Patriots, The Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement, which is available uh, on Amazon or at thebridgehead.ca. But we're seeing similar scenarios now play out in midterm abortion referendums in the U.S. because a relentless torrent of newspaper stories, commercials, and social media ads are basically hammering a couple of simple narratives. Vote for abortion or women will die. 
and pro-lifers push back on these claims, but their rebuttals won't actually receive the same coverage and are often directly contradicted by the press. And so as the saying goes in politics, if you're explaining, you're losing. And pro-lifers are in many cases constantly explaining. The same thing is true for issues of rape or incest, is there are very powerful, very heartbreaking issues that can be used by abortion activists to exploit the sympathy and compassion of voters, where they're not actually selling abortion on demand. In fact, they insist that they're not selling abortion on demand. They insist that late-term abortions almost never happen, that painful abortions are a myth, and all they're asking the mushy middle to do is vote in protection of a 10-year-old rape victim, to vote to ensure that women will not die, that abortion might be evil, but it is a necessary evil, and that the other side doesn't want to permit anyone to have abortions, and that the other side is fundamentally cruel. And so it's, it's difficult for very complex pro-life responses to break through the roar of this like very simple media-amplified pro-abortion message, especially when the abortion activists have not only the support of the mainstream press, which, as I mentioned before, amounts to tens of millions of dollars in free advertising, but they have enormous war chests that are supplied by the abortion industry and sympathetic donors. This was true in Ireland, and it is true for the abortion battles in the U.S. as well. So in Michigan, for example, last year, Reproductive Freedom for All raised at least $40.2 million and spent $22.5 million on midterm election ads, while the Pro-Life Coalition, by contrast, raised about $16.9 million. And abortion activists, as we know, have access to far greater funds outspending pro-lifers during their last midterms in 2022 by 35 to 1. And something similar unfolded in the recent Ohio referendum on November 7, where pro-lifers were once again outspent three to one, even though pro-life groups like the Susan B. Anthony lists sunk a lot of resources into Ohio to fund the door-knocking effort door-to-door. Now, in the lead-up to the Irish referendum, and I, I keep on referencing the Irish referendum because I don't think that the lessons we should have learned from the Irish referendum in 2018 have been learned. And I don't think that pro-life strategists in North America are examining what took place in Ireland, even though there's so much that we can learn about abortion activist tactics, which are being used almost textbook here in the United States, and the result of that referendum and how the mushy middle was swayed to support abortion, even though all the data indicated they didn't support the proposed law of the Irish government. So pro-lifers had a far superior ground game, and that fact was so obvious in 2018 that the media openly worried about it. Anti-abortion activists knocked on millions of doors. They spent weeks on the road. The same thing was true in Michigan and Ohio and elsewhere. Pro-lifers hit the doors and overpasses. They were out in impressive numbers. But in each of these instances, the ground game advantage could not overcome the nonstop ads coming from voters from every screen, the institutional biases that had pro-abortion fact-checkers countering the pro-life message, and big tech's progressive tilt, which ensured that pro-lifers have a more difficult time spreading their message. In Ireland, actually, Google suspended advertisements after pro-life ads appeared to be having a genuine impact. The silent majority isn't pro-life. 
But the silent majority isn't pro-abortion either. The reality is, is that it's split down the middle in many ways. We have the majority of people somewhere in between the pro-life position that somebody like myself would hold and the pro-abortion position that, oh, you know, employee at Planned Parenthood would hold. But the key tools of persuasion right now, especially in a direct democracy situation, are in the hands not of pro-lifers, but of abortion activists. There's something else I think that needs to be just recognized. There's nothing that can be done about this per se, but needs to be recognized. There is an inherent tension between pro-life activists and pro-life politicians because most pro-life activists oppose abortion, which is the killing of a pre-born child, in all circumstances, whereas politicians seek to legislate from the common ground, which in most red states constitutes abortion restrictions with exceptions carved out. This allows abortion activists to hammer pro-life politicians on a handful of rare circumstances, <coughs> excuse me, such as sexual assault, putting them firmly offside with the majority of the American public and politicians who put forward pro-life laws with exceptions are frequently condemned by pro-life activists who see these carve-outs as a fundamental betrayal of innocent children in the womb. And this dynamic simply complicates direct democracy initiatives because pro-lifers spend a lot of time defending our most unpopular positions while abortion activists simply avoid discussing theirs entirely. Now, there's a couple of different ways that the pro-life movement can respond heading in. And first, I want to look at the educational perspective. And the reality is that we must simplify our message. Our most powerful argument is abortion victim photography, which is the pictorial evidence of what happens to a baby during abortion. Polling data that at CCBR and Created Equal we've undertaken plus thousands upon thousands of personal testimonies indicates that this imagery has a huge effect on the way people view abortion, and it removes the issue from the abstract realm of healthcare and confronts the public with the reality of a human being with an actual face. Most people see the abortion issue as an issue of a what? It's a healthcare issue. And we have to confront the public with the reality that abortion is actually about a who. And last year, uh, Dr. Michael New, the pro-life movement's resident statistician, who we've had on this podcast a number of times, highlighted how this strategy was successful in a 1972 Michigan referendum. If we don't show people what abortion is, they can't understand the stakes. And the reality is that a decent percentage of the pro-life movement runs away from these tactics. They're afraid of being open about what abortion is because they're confusing marketing with social reform. A social reform strategy which seeks to change people's minds is turning people off of an injustice. Think William Wilberforce with the slave trade. Think the horrifying photograph of Emmett Till, which created the civil rights movement. Uh, think of the National Child Labor Committee or the Congo Reform Movement or essentially any advocacy group seeking to deter people from a behavior. Is the goal of social reforms to turn people off of something, whereas marketing, the goal is to attract somebody to something. So when you're running a political campaign in which you want to attract people to a candidate, you want to work hard not to turn people off. And as such, a lot of pro-lifers have been looking at marketing tactics, but these tactics don't apply to direct democracy initiatives. Because in a direct democracy initiative, we're not talking about a politician. And so, you know, Governor Mike DeWine was popular in, in Ohio, and he got elected by a very significant margin. Donald Trump took Ohio twice. Uh, but what we realized is that 
politicians who have a variety of positions and get people's votes for a variety of reasons, we can't look at those numbers and say that they're also going to apply to the abortion debate when the same guy who might have voted for Mike DeWine and Donald Trump may not vote. Um, against abortion because he looks at the extreme examples brought up by the abortion rights movement and decides that it's better if abortion is legal even if he doesn't like it. And the only way you're going to convince voter Joe Schmo in the middle of the spectrum um, that abortion is something he should vote against is to turn him off of abortion, to show him that abortion is not about a what, that abortion is about a who. And the reality is that the pro-life movement has, has been in large part running political campaigns that are simply wildly ineffective when it comes to persuading the middle that they should be able, that they should vote against abortion because the opposing narrative presented by abortion activists is so much more potent. So, for example, uh, the abortion activists will say abortion laws hurt women, and the pro-lifers respond by saying, well, no, abortion hurts women. And which of those two narratives is actually more compelling? The reality is that what we call in economics a revealed preference indicates that the majority of voters, even those who might think abortion isn't great for women, reveal their preference that it still be maintained as an option. Uh, they might even agree with pro-lifers that women deserve better, one of these sort of really anodyne statements that makes no moral claim about anything. Um, at the same time, they would rather the women who are choosing decide what's best for them and decide what they deserve. They, in fact, think women deserve to have a choice, even if those same women deserve better. So this messaging is really, really ridiculous in many ways. I can't emphasize uh, how much this messaging doesn't resonate with almost anybody. Because at the end of the day, if abortion does not kill a baby, then abortion laws are cruel. And if we run away from the central issue at the heart of these abortion referendums, we will continue to lose. These entire votes are on one issue. What is abortion? What is abortion? Is it choice or is it killing a baby? If we refuse to define what abortion is in the minds of voters, we will allow abortion rights activists to do so. And they have done that successfully in seven running referendums, while the pro-lifers largely offer up arguments that resonate with very few people. And so... Again, looking back at the Michigan referendum uh, last year, the pro-life coalition there, with some notable exceptions, there were some groups um, who did some phenomenal uh, some, some phenomenal work, but the, the, the main messaging of one of these campaigns was too confusing, too extreme. They were essentially making the case, not against abortion per se, but against the specific proposal that was being put to referendum. They were saying it was too confusing, too extreme. I saw many of their ads. I knew what they were trying to say, and it wasn't even particularly clear to me. And a voter thinking too confusing, too extreme versus women will die in back alleys, 10-year-old rape victims will be forced to carry their rapist baby to term. Our narrative is so anemic in comparison. We have absolutely no message to counter anything that they're saying. The abortion activists are speaking with moral urgency, and we are not. Parental rights was one of the main things um, that was campaigned on in Ohio as well, because internal polling showed that a lot of Ohioans care about parental rights. They don't, however, care about the a very sort of vague issue of parental rights over the idea that a woman might die without getting an abortion, over the idea that a rape victim might be forced to carry her rapist baby to term. Um, again, I don't agree with that framing, but that's the framing that we're facing. And our response narrative is, well, what if, what if, what if uh, you know, um, Sally's dad doesn't know about it? 
Well, if you take those two narratives, one of them is one of them actually is very very powerful, and one of them is not. And the reality is that what 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 this is boiling down to in many instances is voters are deciding who they trust more. And I actually think that abortion activists have been far more honest than we have about what this is all about. And so abortion activists say, this is about abortion, and here's why. Well, they're being honest. They want abortion throughout all nine months of reason, uh, pregnancy for, and for no reason, or, no, or for any reason or for no reason at all, pardon me. And the reality is that although they lie their faces off to make the case that abortion doesn't hurt the baby in the womb, that abortion is health care, they're pretty upfront about what their abortion agenda is, as opposed to a lot of pro-lifers who keep on pretending that this isn't actually about abortion. This is about women deserving better. Uh, this is about a legislation uh, that is too confusing or too extreme. Uh, this is really about about parental rights. An exit polling out of Ohio has already shown us that only 42% of parents who voted um, voted because parental rights was one of the things that they were concerned about. Again, showing that our moral messaging, the moral power of our narrative is nothing compared to the moral power being put forward by abortion activists because we're not campaigning on on the issue that everybody knows we actually care about. When pro-life leaders or pro-life politicians say, this isn't really about abortion, this is actually, actually about parental rights or a law that's too confusing or too extreme, everybody knows that we're being disingenuous because the reality is the only reason any of us are in the movement, the only reason any of us do pro-life work is because we want to save babies because abortion kills babies. Our opponents know that, mushy middle voters know that, and we pretend that abortion referendums aren't actually about abortion, we don't do ourselves any favor either. And I genuinely believe that we damage our credibility when we do that. It's so important to emphasize the fact that our pro-life messaging is not actually relating to, <clears throat> to the ballot box issue that people vote on when they step into the polling booth. And the reality is that we, we are facing this perennial pro-life temptation, which is to compete with the abortion activist narrative by constantly putting the pro-life movement in a reactive position, right? As I said earlier, the abortion movement says abortion laws hurt women. We say, well, actually abortion hurts women. And while it's obviously true that abortion hurts women, this narrative is not powerful enough to compete with the narrative that they are putting forward. And so throughout the entire debate, the central character in this great moral drama, the pre-born child often gets forgotten. This issue is about abortion. Everybody knows it, but too many pro-lifers are denying it for political purposes, but it's utterly unpersuasive. We know abortion is an act of violence that ends the life of a human being, and abortion activists claim abortion is health care. The central task of the pro-life movement is to confront the culture by proving our premises. For most voters, abortion is still about health care. It's not about killing a baby in the womb. And if we spend entire campaigns on what issues rather than who issues, on peripheral issues that essentially affirm their premise that abortion is health care and imply that it is not abortion at any stage that is the issue, but rather particular aspects of the proposed amendment or potential implications of the legislation, we also lose the opportunity to make progress in rehumanizing the dehumanized. And if we don't manage to rehumanize the dehumanized, we are going to lose the abortion debate overall. Because again, if preborn children are not children, pro-life laws are cruel. If preborn children are children, then any legalization of abortion is unthinkably cruel. To 
uh, Greg Kokel, the great apologist, if the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is necessary. However, if the unborn is a human person, no justification for abortion is adequate. And so, secondly, from a political perspective, it is essential to blunt the advantages that direct democracy lends to the abortion movement. It is true that the pro-life movement experienced devastating losses during the midterms, but it's also true um, that there are plenty of governors and politicians who signed strong pro-life laws who swept to victory. States have been consistently passing pro-life laws still, and those laws have already resulted in a discernible drop in the, in the abortion rate. But... It's so important for us to keep the main thing the main thing. And we have not been doing that. What we've been doing is what I call being too clever by half. We've been pretending that the main issue is not, in fact, the main issue. I want to address the issue of despair, though, because I've seen a lot of pro-lifers talking about how perhaps uh, Roe v. Wade was a Pyrrhic victory uh, that has given the abortion movement a permanent advantage. And it's true that Democrats are utilizing the energy of a Rose overturn to fuel voter turnout. And they badly need it right now because people are remarkably unenthusiastic about Joe Biden. And it has been a year of heartbreaking setbacks. But I want to point out again that on June 23, 2022, the entire country was Ohio. And now, as Dr. Michael New pointed out in a recent article at National Review Online, there are laws protecting all preborn children in place in 14 states, including heartbeat laws in Georgia and South Carolina, and strong pro-life laws protecting thousands of preborn children in 16 states. And notably, nine of these 16 states do not have citizens' initiatives, meaning that these laws cannot be overturned by direct democracy. Now, pro-lifers must remember that the fall of Roe has already saved tens of thousands of lives, provably, and made possible pro-life laws across the United States that will save thousands more in years to come, and those children live because Roe is dead. That said, as I've just been saying, it's so important for us to look at why we're losing these referendums and to examine our strategy and our tactics in the face of what we find in exit polls. And it is simply true that there is a backlash to the fall of Roe. It is simply true that there are many people who, even if they are uncomfortable with abortion, are going to vote for abortion because privately they want it as a backstop to their own sexual behavior. It is also true that it's very difficult for us to combat complex questions in a media that is oriented towards simplistically endorsing the abortion movement's point of view. However, what is also true is that abortion kills a preborn child in the womb, that we have very good evidence that this does this, that we have quotes from abortionists across the United States affirming that abortion kills a baby in the womb. We have the testimony of employees of Planned Parenthood and butchers and clinics in almost every state actually admitting what it is that they do. We should be publicizing the testimony of abortionists that explain what abortion actually is. We should be showing people who the preborn actually are and what abortion actually does to them because as pro-life leader Greg Cunningham said, the only thing that can horrify people more, and I'm paraphrasing him slightly, the only thing that can horrify people more than the prospect of a crisis pregnancy is the reality that abortion is the violent destruction of a human being in the womb. But if we don't prove our premises, if we don't rehumanize the dehumanize, if we don't keep the main thing the main thing and focus the abortion debate on abortion, we will consistently allow our opponents to have the most forceful moral narrative. We will allow them to define what abortion is. 
while we campaign hard and waste money and waste time on peripheral issues that voters claim they care about, but that their revealed preference actually indicates they don't care about very much. And so with that, I want to encourage everybody who's listening Despite these very discouraging losses, uh, there is no warrant whatsoever looking at the political landscape for despair or discouragement. We are in an infinitely better position than we were just over a year ago before Roe v. Wade fell. Tens of thousands of babies are alive because Roe is dead, and we should be focusing our attention on those babies. We should be making abortion about a who and not a what, and we should be telling the truth about the fact that, yes, we are against abortion, and here's why we are against abortion. And it's not because of parental rights, and it's not because these laws are too confusing or too extreme. It's because abortion kills babies. Thank you so much for listening this week. I hope you'll share this episode with anybody that you might uh, think finds it useful. If you want to subscribe to our podcast and listen to other shows, head over to lifesightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can find our content wherever you get your content. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week.